picture this. You get your first job as a future titan of industry at Minimally Useful Industries. Life's great. You're working on some top tier shit. In fact, you just invented the most amazing piss bottling device as part of a bit your bosses are working on. You, with the guidance and financial prowess of your employers, patent that bitch and prepare to ride the gravy train into retirement on licensing fees. But alas, some company totally not named Amazon comes along and just rips off your idea. They steal the entire damn thing and even have the nerve to start selling it. Well, this is the very reason Minimally Useful retains a lawyer that's definitely not an orangutan dressed in a suit. While you and Pablo Fuzzy Pitts Esquire file suit against totally not Amazon for patent infringement. Fast forward four years and $2 million spent on legal fees and the judge finally reaches a decision. Amazon is off the hook for everything except your legal fees. They will pay the costs of the world's most dashing orangutan, but nothing more. No damages, no licensing fees, just legal costs. You're crushed. As you leave the court, you scream at the judge, well, what's the point of patents if anyone can just steal your idea whenever they want? And your lawyer proceeds to flip the judge the bird as you two walk out the door. I would pay, I don't know, maybe $20. Like if, if you said, I have a video of an orangutan lawyer that he is not an orangutan. It said very explicitly that he is not an orangutan in a suit. Lord, that's oh, that's definitely not an orangutan. Okay, but I'm just. I okay. mean, he might be wearing something other than a suit. I guess that yeah. would fit inside that that statement. But but if you did say, I have a, vi- a video. It's just ten seconds long, but it's of an orangutan dressed in a suit that flips a judge off. I'd probably pay twenty dollars for that. <laughs> Coming to an NFT near you. Yeah. <laughs> Outside of definitely not an orangutan, definitely not Amazon. This story is something that has happened before. Quite a few times. Yeah. You sent this to me the other day as kind of an idea on a topic. And I had never heard of this case that we're going to go into. But, I mean, it's some real bullshit. That brings us to the topic for today, which was patents. And most importantly, this idea of efficient infringement. Efficient infringement, which is essentially building the cost that a company would need to pay if they stole an intellectual property. (laughs) The way that this was described on one lawyer's blog was that there's some company or some corporate calculus that goes into play to determine what the legal expenses would be. And if the person that owns the patent is like an individual or a small company, then they basically just say, no, well, we'll be fine. We'll just take it on. They They're, probably won't be able to like afford legal fees. Or yeah. Anything. Even if they file suit, they, we can just kind of hold them in court and delay it while they rack up legal fees. And then they'll, they'll drop it because they can't afford to fight it any longer. So that's cool. That is definitely something that I hadn't thought about. It makes sense that it exists. My original understanding of patents, anytime that you infringed on it, you would be hit with not only the legal fees for the person that filed suit, but punitive damages. And you would be required to either license it from them or cease producing the product. 
Amazon Basics proves that that is a lie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that seem, doesn't seem to be the case. That law blog. And I think I want to say that it was Scalia's blog that it was on. It was the one that you sent me, which I feel oh, like yeah. was written by a Supreme Court justice. But the whole thing was he said that the punitive damages were not something that was being ruled on. And if you go further down to read it after he explains what this is and how it worked in court, he also argued that this was more of a mental exercise and not something that was actually happening. Uh, and it was funny because you sent me two links and the second one is a prime example of exactly this happening. <laughs> it <laughs> happened in, in, what was it, the 60s? Uh, yeah. Started in the 60s, then. went through the 70s. Yeah. yeah. To move into that, there was this fella named Robert Kearns. I love his story so much. <laughs> so, so much. Well, it's kind of sad. I mean, uh, in a way, it I is, mean, but... Just the the building the character in your mind. Oh yeah, is something. <laughs> no, I mean he's definitely at the end of the story is definitely a guy that you would love to go have a beer with and just hear this war story that right. he has to tell. The story begins with a young Robert Kearns, who is what you would imagine an inventor to be. The guy goes to school, he gets a degree, and he says hey, automobiles are the big thing right now. So anything that you can create for an automobile is going to be a success. There's so many of them. They're selling like hotcakes. If you can get into that, your product's going to be pushed off the shelves like crazy. Unfortunately for him, when he started, he didn't have any ideas that revolved around that. Like I think it was things like the auto-greasing hair comb. Yeah, it was like weird shit like yeah. that. And he was pitching this idea that automobiles are huge. You got to do things about that. But none of his early inventions included anything for the automobile. And then this dude's getting married on his wedding day. He manages to pop a champagne cork and hit himself in the eye, blinding himself in one eye, which is truly something. That's a wonderful way to ruin your wedding, I suppose. One of the outcomes of that was that when he was driving his car, he had a hard time seeing when it was raining because of the way the wipers worked. So I have a question. What did wipers do back then? So they were constant. So you had two modes. You had a low and a high mode or light rain and heavy rain mode. And in the low mode, it just slowly swept across the windshield. And in the high speed mode, it was basically just this thing flicking across your window constantly. Huh. So he said that with only having the vision in one eye, it made it really hard for him to see. And it was very distracting to drive with it in heavy rain. So he said to himself, Robert, we've got a window here. What's something that's similar to that? And he's like, you know what? We already have something that's very much like this. And we call it an eyeball. So he basically shattered a window with a champagne cork. <laughs> he said, why don't we make windshield wipers work more like you do with your eyelids, where you can control the amount that you open and close them. There's a delay in there so that you have a gap to see. So when you blink, it's a quick swipe across and then you can see out. 
So when you have a high speed wiper, it still won't be constantly like flicking across the screen. It'll go down and come back up, go down, come back up. And he said that the big thing was that there was no in between. You couldn't adjust the speed. It was low or high. So that's what he did. He spent a lot of time and he developed this idea for the intermittent wiper, which when it would come down, it would sit there for a second, giving your natural vision the ability to see out the windscreen while it was cleared off. Obviously a good idea, considering that it's installed in every single car on the planet now. Someone found some merit to that. And so he, being a Ford guy and seeing that Ford was the largest car manufacturer at the time, said, let me go talk to him. Let's see what we can do. He reached out to Ford's engineering team. He had this grandiose idea that he'd pitch Ford on this intermittent wiper. They'd love the idea, and he'd be the sole supplier for them. He'd create this little factory where he could make these intermittent wiper components and sell all this stuff to Ford. Reaches out to his buddies at Ford. They bring him in, and they're like, yeah, it's a great idea. Love it. But windshield wipers are a safety feature. So we need to make sure that it can run at minimum 6 million cycles. And so he goes back home and says, yeah, we can do that. And he fills like a little aquarium tank with, with what was it, oil and sawdust. Yeah. And basically sits there and lets the wipers swipe back and forth for six months. Comes back to Ford, shows them his little experiment. And they said, yeah, it's great. So then his thought process was like, okay, well, let's... Let's do this. Let's sign a contract and start selling intermittent wipers. And they say, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to bring you on. You're going to work for us and we're going to start building your product. So he worked for them for five months and then they canned him. Just let him go. Weirdly enough, they let him go, but the car still came out with intermittent wipers on them. Ford started Mm -hmm. selling retrofit kits. It cost them $10 to produce and they were selling them for I think it was $37. (laughs) They're making $27 a pop in 1968, I think was the year, or 1970. Ford's over here. They brought him in, stole his idea, then made bank off of it. Kearns did what any reasonable person would do, especially someone that holds a patent on something. He filed a lawsuit against him. And so the first thing that Ford's lawyers tried to do was stall it. They held up the trial in court and said, okay, well, they did all kinds of whatever the lawyery stuff is that seems to make it so that a trial doesn't start on the first date that it should. It drags on for a long time. Their whole goal was to make him run out of money. They thought, well, this is just a single guy. He's not rich by any means. If we can just delay this process long enough, he'll give up. Well, Robert Kearns was not a pushover. He was going to fight back. By the time this was all said and done, trying to get to court and everything, he had gone through five legal teams until he ultimately ended up defending himself. That is already right there. Respect. Yeah, (laughs) you really appreciate the story. At that point, Ford was just like, well, shit, Uh, this guy's not going to go away. What can we do? And they offered him $30 million to settle and say, hey, here's $30 million. We walk away from this. No one did anything wrong. This was just a misunderstanding. Why don't you just take the money and go be rich somewhere and be happy? Kearns, being the badass he was, said, no, you screwed me over. We're taking this to trial. And he did. 
And this is the part that pisses me off. He wins the trial and the judge awards him $10 million. When he went into this trial, he was looking for $350 million. He was asking for $50 for every intermittent wiper unit sold. Seems fair. So that would be $37 plus a $13 punitive charge. He ended up with $10 million from the Ford suit, which is nowhere even close to that. So Ford basically got to walk away making $27 a unit after selling however many million they did and had to pay him $10 million for the luxury. So if that doesn't fit into that category of efficient infringement. But it's just intellectual. Yeah. I mean, it's totally not a real world experience. And this guy spent forever fighting Ford on this. Due to this whole thing, he had become obsessed with it, with taking down Ford and getting paid for this. And basically tarnishing them in the public eye. Like, these are thieves. They stole my idea. They refused to pay for it. And they've basically stolen my dream of running a company on my design and not had to pay me anything. He became obsessed. He ended up like sleeping on his office floor while he was pouring through files. He brought his kids into this. They were pouring through documents. And then his wife ended up divorcing him all because of this Ford lawsuit that was going on. I mean, if anything, this is a testament to just like the, the fervor of this man. Right. I mean, when he wants something, he's going to follow through. But he went on to sue other car manufacturers, too, because obviously intermittent wipers are a cool thing. Every other car manufacturer picked up the idea. They copied his modules to make them work. And he went after Chrysler and won $18 million from them, which is just mind boggling. For the actual infringement, he won $10 million. And then for Chrysler, who just infringed, stole it from Ford, he won almost 20 And I didn't think to look this up, but I should have. I wonder if Ford filed suit against Chrysler for stealing the idea. Oh, I mean, why not? You can probably like recoup money off of your original loss in the lawsuit. I'd imagine that Ford probably sued Chrysler for stealing the intermittent wiper idea and then probably won like $100 million or something stupid. They actually profited off of stealing. They profited off their lawsuits on on telling other people they infringed on their stuff. Well, I think kind of a more modern case, you know, I know this was the 70s, but I, I know Amazon's gotten in trouble a bunch of times because they'll be like, oh, wow, this person is selling like owl figurines or something like that. And they're making bank off of this. And then lo and behold, their shop starts getting deprioritized in the rankings because there's an Amazon Basics version of it. And it's just like, hmm, that doesn't seem like fucked up at all. There's a bag. It was like a camera bag or something where the the people actually made like a video about it. Oh, there's been a whole bunch of them where people have basically listed their own creations on Amazon and then all of a sudden Amazon Basics has their own version, which does show up first. Well, and it's always the recommended one too. Well, yeah. I mean, they're not going to not recommend their own product. Right. The thing that's been amazing though is Google was hit with lawsuits for that super early on saying, hey, you can't prioritize Google products in Google search results. And here's Amazon doing the same freaking thing and seems to be no complaints. So I don't understand how we can be in the situation where 
we all agreed when Google did it, like, no, that's messed up. Like if Google launches a competitor, they shouldn't deprioritize the original one because all of a sudden they can make more money by pushing traffic to their own. Right. And I guess the argument here is from, well, at least from a legal standpoint, it is probably that, oh, well, Google's a search engine. Their products all designed around finding stuff, whereas Amazon's a store and their products just designed around buying it. it you don't care where it comes from as long as you get what you wanted. So I, I don't know. I, that would be my guess for what their lawyers would argue. But yeah, Robert Kearns didn't have a good go of it. He ended up in total making about $30 million off of his product while Ford made way more. I know we're eventually going to talk about kind of more like silly patents or like just stupid patents that businesses have filed for. But I wanted to test how you feel on it. Do you think patents help or hurt overall? Right now, I would I would argue with what they let through and what they get patented. Like even even if the patent system is perfect in a way where you where it's like very specific so you know you can't just patent like white space or something like that yeah i think it's a good idea i think it makes sense yeah you have to have some mechanism to say hey i created this idea it was mine i developed it and you should be the one that gets paid for it for creating this thing otherwise anything that you create is basically free reign for a large company to just pick up and take i mean not that Clearly, that's still the case, but at least you have some legal grounds right now to go after them. If you didn't have a patent, anything that is invented is going to be much easier for a large company to pick up and produce than it is for you to start from scratch to get that production running and advertising. And like the Amazon Basics thing is a prime example. If let's say that you were the inventor of the pop socket, for whatever reason, they became super, super popular like overnight. And if you're selling them for yourself, you're making this profit. But Amazon comes along and anyone that goes on to Amazon and searches pop socket sees an Amazon basic pop socket completely ripped off your design. There's nothing you can do about that without a patent. True. I, I just, I know some people tend to brand patents as being like a hindrance to invention. But I, I can see that, you know, like there's a use case where it's just like, you have some company holding on to a patent that won't let people like improve upon it because it's like, because it's one of those like shitty patents where it's like they patented a screw or something, you know, it's like, well, shit, we can't use this screw. So it's like, or Apple's rounded corners. I see is next in the list. I can understand the argument that patents could hinder innovation in some sense because the whole idea behind the whole founding of even Linux and open source was that information should be free. Everyone benefits by having the information out in the open. But at the end of the day, you don't want to be the person that invents this thing that makes some other company profit. In one sense, yes, it's great that everyone gets access to this thing. But like in the pop socket example, if you created that, I mean, you should be the one that's benefiting financially from that not amazon they didn't do anything except for steal something they found on the internet right i mean that's kind of where i draw the line not like amazon basics is pushing like the 
front lines of invention instead it's just like oh that makes money for people and we want that money yeah and that's coming from a company that can see exactly how much everything is selling and which ones are popular it's super shitty from their perspective because they're basically well the market is super hot on this right now and in three weeks we could release our own that's exactly the same but says amazon on it and it'll be the first thing that shows up on the search results the real fuzzy part is just around how patents work and the specificity of what's in the patent and what constitutes infringement versus a new design and i don't think that there's a solid answer to that that's what was wild when i was looking up patents for um the beer tap thing we were trying to do there was a patent for a digital beer tap effectively i mean it was a pretty old patent well let's start with the design was a was a tap handle that had a screen inside of it that could give you information about what was on tap and it could also tell the bartender how much was left in the keg so it, it hooked up to a sensor suite and and it was a super great idea and we've been shunned. So now we're making basically parody business um, because <laughs> it's like a villain backstory. Anyway, so I was looking into just doing like a patent pending type of thing, which is, you know, your patent's been filed and then you have like a certain amount of time to actually like refine it. And I found one where it was like this a patent on a digital tap handle but the interesting thing was is like it was made a while ago and one of the kind of bullet points on the patent was um a section that talks about how they how the tap handles communicated so the original patent was for coaxial connection but then it was like oh also phone wire ethernet and any future communication technology. Like that was like a legitimate piece of language on it. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, I'm sorry, what the fuck? We should also note that that patent was filed by Anheuser-Busch. Yeah. And so not only that, but it was very vague in how it was worded for everything. It was that there was some display. Well, it was a backlit screen. So it was actually a static picture their original patent was a static picture but having any sort of backlit screen it was the way it was worded and a communications interface and that was it like there was no i don't think there was a drawing on there of what this would actually look like no it just had drawings of like how it could communicate with other stuff which yeah i mean that doesn't matter at that point you have information coming in it doesn't in my mind, it, that doesn't matter from an implementation standpoint. If you got it via Wi-Fi or a coax cable, it's still the same idea, right? Right. But still just being able to do this like kind of catch-all of like any future version of X. As far as the patents went, that wasn't the worst one that I've seen. Yeah, let's let's get into some of these like really brilliant ones. But I mean, it still was very vague. And what you come to expect from a patent, even looking at the one for the intermittent wipers, was a very detailed diagram of how his system worked. And it's like, so if you're patenting something that you haven't even built or have any idea of how you would build, it kind of feels like you're cheating. Like, yeah, I came up with this idea. I don't know how you would implement it. Like, yeah, it's my time machine. I patented it. It has words in there like uses circuitry and computer software to travel through time like 
<laughs> what the hell? How could that be patented? You haven't described how you do it. But that's the kind of thing that was in there that we saw. That's the idea with Robert Kearns was the idea of a, a real world example of efficient infringement. Next, we kind of wanted to go into some of the world's shittiest patents that we could find. Just things that go through. And I saw some interesting statistics because the Electronic Freedom Foundation had a whole, I mean, they spend a ton of effort on patents to throw out some things. They absolutely hate software patents. They also seemed pretty on the fence about design patents, which are basically allowing you to patent the way something looks. Not necessarily utility patent, which is a standard one that you think of, but design was just exactly what it looks like. And the prime example of this is Apple. Apple and Samsung got into this huge legal battle over a design patent. And Apple's patent is very much for the iPad and having rounded corners on a device. Uh, just think that's so dumb. Because, well, because it's like, you know, isn't the idea behind a patent more to like say, hey, here's this brand new thing that I've thought of that no one has yet. And I'm just trying to protect that because I'm going to sell it. And instead, it's just like Apple's like, no one's ever fucking thought of rounded corners on a device. Well, and it's like, mm. I was reading more about that. And so a design patent is different. So the explanation that I read and my understanding is that a design patent is basically saying. So you can't like manufacture knockoffs. Yeah, exactly. But I feel like that's where copyright and trademark fit in. If your whole thing is that. Yes, we release a 9.7-inch tablet screen with corners rounded to whatever degree, and this is exactly what it looks like. That fits into a trademark. Like, this is the Apple iPad. Like, that's what I would think it would be, but apparently that can be a design patent. And this one was very specific about it, it having rounded corners. <laughs> like, that was the big thing, and it ended up being a billion-dollar case of Apple versus Samsung over rounded corners. I can't imagine being on that jury and just sitting here and going like, this is how I have to spend my freaking time is deciding <laughs> whether or not like, and ultimately they decided in Apple's favor, I believe from a legal standpoint, it's like, well, yeah, it Samsung's device does violate that. It has round corners. I mean, somehow Apple managed to get a patent on this and it does violate that. But at the end of the day, you have to sit there and go like, why the, was this patented? Like, I don't understand. Yeah, it was interesting. There was another one that you will really, really appreciate given the choice of topic you had earlier. Amazon was awarded a patent to take photos of products in front of a white background. So how do you even patent that? Because it's like, isn't there precedent for people who've done it before you? Here's what I don't understand. How do you patent something that's been done before and is like in the public, you know, because it's like if we release content or something like that, it's out in the wild. So there's, you know, it's like, yeah, people could copy it, but there's really no point because it's not new or novel. It's, it's not. Yeah. Right. It's not. Yeah. So this one was interesting and I didn't go in and read this one because I, I don't need that in my life. I'll see if I can find the language. No, no, don't. I don't want to know. I just 
I have so little faith in the system already that I don't want it to be what little trust I have to be crushed by finding out the results. Yeah. So the EFF said that, so with the number of patents that are filed every year and the amount of people that they have working there, the estimate is that the average patent sees less than, I think it was 18 hours of review. And so in that time, it's reviewing the language, determining whether or not it meets or whether it was filed properly, whether it meets the criteria to be filed and going back and looking for prior art and work and making sure that it's new. Okay. Can I please read this to you? (sighs) Go ahead. Crush my world again. Okay. Disclosed are various embodiments of a studio arrangement and a method of capturing images and or video. One embodiment of the disclosure includes a front light source aimed at a background, an image capture position, Located between the background and the front light source, an elevated platform positioned between the image capture position and the background, and at least one rear light source positioned between the elevated platform and the background. A subject can be photographed and or filmed on the elevated platform to achieve a desired effect of a substantially seamless background where a rear edge of the elevated platform is imperceptible to an image capture device position at the image capture position. I literally have a setup for this that we bought off of Amazon. Maybe that didn't predate their patent. Maybe I'm, maybe this was an Amazon basics product. uh, uh, November 9th, 2011 was when it was filed. So the patent is, yeah. And it was awarded in 2014. They have 27 claims in the patent. So basically putting a product against a white background on a white podium, doing a little bit of rear lighting and then a front light with a camera on a tripod. That's my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So to think that no product was ever photographed in that manner prior to 2011 is insane. (laughs) Hey, we've had products against white backgrounds since forever. Oh, here's the the catch-all. It should be emphasized that the above-described embodiments of the present disclosure are merely possible examples of implementation set forth for a clear understanding of the principles of the disclosure. Many variations and modifications may be made to the above-described embodiments without departing substantially from the spirit and principles of the disclosure. All such modifications and variations are intended to be included herein within the scope of this disclosure and protected by the following claims. Yeah. And so is that a design patent or a utility patent? It would have to be a utility patent. Oh, yeah. It's a utility. Yeah. And so basically photographing product is their patent against a standard background. Which, and I mean, like how many years has photography existed? Between because it got approved on the March 18th, 2014. Well, I mean, they were shipping out Sears catalogs for how many years before Amazon was even a thing, and product images have been a thing forever. But moving on, because I don't want to dwell on that any longer. (laughs) I am (laughs) 1839. The 1839 is considered to be the start of photography as a viable medium. Interesting. It probably took a little bit longer to get to that place where you could. I mean, even if you do, even if you give it a hundred years, <laughs> 1939. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, I think these, you've still got quite a bit of leeway. No, there. but it wasn't until someone at Amazon decided to put a white background that it really took off. 
And are there, are there people just sitting around like, what the fuck? No way. <laughs> like the, the fucking cutting edge Amazon. Yes, there are those people. Have we gotten to the IBM one yet? Yeah, the IBM one. So in 2017, IBM was granted a patent for its out-of-office email system. Like, again, this isn't anything new, but IBM claimed that it was special because it was handled in the hardware. I didn't go into that because I don't think that IBM knows what they're doing, especially in the past decade, uh, at least according to their stock ticker. Watson. It was over a decade ago, wasn't it? That Jeopardy? Yeah. So I didn't dig down into that one too much. But to sit here and say, yeah, out of office, we patented it. I can't even, I'm trying to think of a way that could make this a novel thing where like, oh yeah, we could have never imagined doing out of office that way. Like, I mean, even if you were to sit here and say, oh yeah, when we have their phone and it shows that they're out of town, we automatically mark them out of office. It's like, that's not really... (laughs) special it's not really this mind-blowing thing that no one ever would have thought of i mean it doesn't have to be mind-blowing to be patented i don't think so but i think an easy way to prescribe it is like if you put a hundred people in a room and you ask them to solve a problem if more than 80 people come up with that it's not a patent well, I don't even think that's necessarily the case. <laughs> because I don't know. I'm trying to think of an easy way to say, like, what's a good patent and what's a bad patent. There's plenty of things where, like, let's take the aglet on your shoelaces. Oh, yeah. How long did it take for that to become a thing? And it, and if you were to put 80 people in a room or 100 people in a room, there's a good chance that a giant chunk of them are going to say, well, let's just put something on the end of it that makes it easier to thread through the, the holes on the shoes. but it's being that first person to do it. That's kind of the key to this. Right. And even then at some point there has to be a utility to it. So like that thing on the end of your shoelace is super freaking useful, but white backdrop. And uh, granted that taking a picture of a product on a white background so that you can, it looks like the products floating there is, is useful at least from a story perspective, but it's definitely not new. Right. So I don't know Um, how that happens. 1839. So I'll share an anecdote. One of the places that I worked, they actually have a, it's like a program where if you come up with an idea, you pitch it to the business and then you can like, they'll help you patent it in tandem with them. I find it super interesting because I was going through all the things that had been patented. They're like the dumbest fucking business things I've ever heard because it's all like business stuff. So one of them is um, in the security space, you have all these tools that find these like out of compliance items. So that can be like your, vulnerability scanning that can just be like, hey, you're not configuring things in the right way. So um, the patent is on taking these things and grouping them into categories and then counting them. And if the count is high enough, they move like up and down in tiers of like risk ranking. That's a patented thing. You bring up an excellent point because there has been a lot of talk about patenting business procedures right how do you even do that how does another business like find that out 
and that would be the thing. It would be like patenting the agile methodology. How is that something that, I mean, it's a process. So I don't know where you draw this line because to that extent, so is an assembly line. Can you patent the idea of an assembly line or right. can you only patent the way that the assembly line works for this specific product? I mean, I would be more inclined to agree with the, the latter there. Uh, the idea that things should be built in pieces and moved down a line doesn't seem like something that should be restricted from the public without paying Henry Ford to do it. Has anybody patented fire yet? Because <laughs> uh, that would be interesting is like, through any means, you get the molecules of a, a chunk of matter moving fast enough. I believe that Apple has a patent on it. Yeah. Apple and Amazon are currently in a legal battle right now over it. <laughs> the part that got really interesting was to go on to the EFF website, the Electronic Electronic Frontier Foundation. This podcast brought to you by the Electronic Frontier. <laughs> Just kidding. No, that's fine. They're out there trying to fight for some of this. And one of the things that they did was this stupid patent of the month. Oh, I like that. Like in the explanation of what this blog series was going to be, it was like, well, we're not going to cover everything because we review so many stupid patents all the time. We're just going to give you the highlights. One of the things was just, like I said earlier, that they are receiving so many patent applications and that it's so understaffed from a review standpoint that a lot of stuff's getting through. And we've seen a massive rise in patent trolls. They said that patent trolls, they're using software patents as a large hammer to go out there and just try and rake in money off of patent suits. The rise in such broad software patents created an environment ripe for patent trolling to surge in popularity. Since 2005, the number of patent troll lawsuits per year has skyrocketed. A fourfold increase to over 5,000 lawsuits every year by 2012, for the, the first time ever, more than half of all patent suits were brought by trolls. These are companies going out there that are just basically filing super broad generic patents and then suing the pants off of anyone that they can come close to. And they're targeting small businesses. You just need like one trial to turn out. Well, that was the thing that was real interesting. Was So they're going after small businesses because... They have the highest likelihood of settling. There were statistics on this and it said patent trolls often sue with weak software patents. So when they are actually challenged in court, they usually lose. From 1995 to 2011, patent trolls won fewer than 25% of cases that went to judgment. And the most aggressive trolls fare even worse. Of the most frequently litigated patents, those asserted in eight or more lawsuits, the trolls won fewer than 10% of their cases. Unfortunately, the patent litigation is so expensive, it is often cheaper to pay the troll to go away. Even for smaller companies, the average cost of defending a patent case all the way through trial approaches $2 million. Wow. Our patent system has allowed these people to file these overly broad, super generic patents and then go out and basically threaten every company that even comes close to anything that resembles that patent. This would be a prime case of like what you said about the tap handle. It was like, okay, any communication method that may happen to happen in the future, like that kind of thing. And maybe if you got a patent on out of office and all of a sudden you can start suing every company that makes software that includes an out of office feature and, and things like that are allowing these trolls to make it just shitloads of money 
without doing anything. They didn't create anything. They wrote up a document on something that basically exists. Well, can't you buy a patent from people too? You can. So they could just like buy a patent. And cause isn't that what uh, Shikarelli did or whatever his name, the guy who bought Yes, the, that's how he jacked up prices on pharmaceuticals. They'll do that in some cases where they'll go out and buy patents, especially when they're things that are similar to other what other companies have already started selling. And then they'll go after those companies and say, hey, we've got a patent on this and you're violating it. Some examples that they had given were a patent troll has sued restaurants, hotels, and companies for using Wi-Fi. Another troll has blanketed the nation with letters demanding that companies pay $1,000 per employee for using standard office technology like scanners and email. So they just patented the use of it? Yeah. Or they have something in there that would encompass something as generic as a scanner or email. What's happening is that what you would expect is in these cases, they would be slapped with horrendous fines for essentially what amounts to spam, but also for abusing the legal system and straight up threatening people. I mean, that's extortion. <laughs> right. You got to up the stakes, I feel like. You got to say, okay, you know, not only can you lose this trial and have spent money on legal fees, which they're probably also lawyers, I'd imagine. Otherwise, how would you afford it? But also, you can lose your patent. You can. And so that's why most of these go after smaller companies. Because if this place was to go after a Google, first thing they're going to do is fight to invalidate the patent. And so once that happens, then this troll not only loses that case and the legal fees that are associated with Google's legal team, but they also lose the patent and the ability to sue anyone else. So they'll go after these small guys because there's no way that they can afford $2 million to go through the full process. They're going to be sitting there going, okay, well, we either pay this $100,000 now or we have to spend $2 million to get to the point where we can show that this is garbage. So that immediately makes you start to question the legal process, but it makes you question even more the ability for these people to get these patents that allow them to do this. If your argument is that you have a patent on scanners, then how is a company at fault for using them? Right. Their patent obviously isn't around the idea of some technology that would go into building a scanner. It's around using it in a workplace, which is that business method patent stuff, which is just straight so stupid. Yeah. And I don't know how you could ever make that argument because presumably there are patents around scanner technology. And the very fact that companies are producing scanners means that you buying the scanner is licensing you to use that technology. Can you just imagine like Hewlett Packard <laughs> selling these? Just be like, all right, full disclosure, uh, you know, we know you just ordered 200 scanners from us. You actually can't use them. You have to license the method of using the scanner. The whole thing is crazy. And then we have a list of other things that made it into the stupid patent of the month. So in 2021, a patent was awarded that was labeled a protocol for a remotely controlled video conferencing robot. Well, they've had those in Asia for like 20 years. Well, wait, because while it sounds cool, it's not even what you think. It's not like the little robot that roams around with the iPad face. Yeah, that, well, that's what I assumed. No, it's not even that sophisticated. 
in this instance, a robot is just any system that allows communications through a broadband network. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Well, I mean, wouldn't that also be like a switch? Or like, <laughs> like there's a bunch of the, a router uh, like allows communications through a broadband network. The system comprises multiple robots, but for all the science fiction fantasies that words conjure, uh, these robots can be any kind of computing device with a camera, monitor, and broadband interface. So a computer. Or your phone. So my phone's a robot. That's kind of cool. Yeah, phones, tablets, computers, all of that, robots. And the idea that you can patent a protocol for remotely controlled video conferencing was just mind-boggling because I don't know what you're doing. We already have these. But anyway, that one was awarded a patent. How do you, it just seems absolutely wild that, can you imagine filing it and you just get a letter back in the mail and you're like, no fucking way. (laughs) It was a joke and they did it. They gave it to me. That's exactly what that would be. We should start doing that. Yeah, it's super expensive. So now. Well, I mean, obviously we, we could make an app. Oh, we should make an app that can like easily file US patent and then patent that app. And the method we use to create that. Yeah. And also uh, using a device to engage in a service made easier by the usage of inconvenience of that device <laughs> and all future devices. I think I really have a talent for this. <laughs> this one was in 2011 and the title was System and Method for Storing Broadcast Content in a Cloud-Based Computing Environment. Quite literally... This is the idea of any service. I mean, we have YouTube was probably the most popular one by now, but like any method for storing a video and sharing it on the internet. This would have also encompassed things like eBombs World. <laughs> Takes me back. Going through this, here was EFF's take on it. Overall, the patent contains little more than rote recitations of the long existing technologies. A list of media content may be provided to the consumer and displayed on a consumer device display, for example, via a website displayed in a web browser. And pricing models, the cost amount may be based on factors such as playback time. The patent's claims, which describes the formal boundaries of the innovation or the invention, merely list steps for using this conventional technology. And so I went into this patent one because I opened it up and looked at the design because I was super curious. And it was literally just a list of like, you would use a database to store information about which videos you have and what their information is. Simply genius. You would use a website to share this information. Doesn't even like the fact that you're listing things that already exist, like you would use a database to store information. The fact that a database exists would precipitate you storing information on it would be my thought. Or like the scanner thing, you know, like employees scanning stuff, patent. That's the very purpose of a scanner, though. So like in this situation, you can have a patent for something that's based on existing things and you're combining them in some novel way. So could I create a patent using entirely patented things if I use them in a novel way, like creating a giant hammer, except the head of the hammer is actually a Tesla? I would think so i mean your patent's gonna fall apart when someone uses a a different car volkswagen or something (laughs) 
Tesla or any other car created by an eccentric billionaire? I think you're going to have a hard time getting away with that one since that's a branded thing. But like, if you were to say that you combined a guitar and something else, another guitar to form a double guitar to create something new, then yeah, I mean, I would think you could patent it because at the end of the day, that's what everything was that's created. Like the guy that made the intermittent wipers, he took windshield wipers and created a new way of driving them. So windshield wipers were presumably patented as well. Can we just start stacking things on top of things? <laughs> Almost like world records in a way where it's like, if there's a patent for like a database of databases, can we just throw an additional layer on stuff? I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but I am interested in building the world's first guitar telescope. We need to see how much it costs to get a lawyer on retainer. <laughs> And part of the retainer agreement is that we bring them on the podcast every once in a while and they have to answer our stupid questions. Well, I'm, now I'm interested. Would a guitar telescope be patentable where I can play guitar and look out into space at the same time? Well, pondering the mysteries, can you shred Stairway to Heaven? Wonderwall <laughs> has never been as inspiring as when you're staring at the craters on the moon. That is true. The whole thing was just insane to go through some of these lists. And they've been doing this stupid patent of the month thing for years. And before we wrap up, I wanted to bring up one of my favorite ones, which is the Google versus Oracle battle over Android. I don't know how much you remember about that, but I vaguely recall as a software developer one, this one really hit home. What it was is that Oracle when they bought Sun Microsystems, they got the rights to the Java programming language. And so the Java programming language has what you call an API or an application programming interface, which is basically a list of things that it can do. It's like a contract that says, hey, if you send this to me, I'm going to, this is what it will do. And so what happened was that Google were using Java and that's what the basis was for Android. They used the one that Oracle was providing and they went off of that because it was a free open source thing. Well, Oracle being Oracle decided that it needs a license. So Google started the, the process of transitioning that into their own implementation of what is known as the Java virtual machine, which is what makes Java actually run. So they said that, okay, Java has this API that says, whenever you, like if you said round a number, it goes off and it rounds the number. And so Google made their own implementation of that that did the exact same thing and looked like Java to anyone working with it, but it wasn't Java. And so Oracle sued the crap out of them saying that they violated Oracle's ownership of Java. And they said, well, we didn't steal the code. We implemented this ourselves." Then Oracle said, well, you can't implement it because we own the API and it's patented. <laughs> <laughs> it's like got him. It's like saying that you stole someone's book because you have the table of contents is essentially what happened. Story could be written entirely different, but still match that table of contents. Well, it would be comparing the table of contents of like Trump's newest book to Mein Kampf. No, not even. Because it would have to be the same table of contents. <laughs> well, no, it would follow the same table of contents because it would just be it's everybody else's fault, not mine. I'm a really cool guy. And uh, specific, I have big plans to like fix things that are racially motivated. 
Oh, okay. Well, yeah, there you go. Uh, Never mind. So, uh, so yeah, I same, corrected. same table of contents, just uh, one written by a failed artist and the other one written by a just failure. This lawsuit went on for years and had billions of dollars on the line. Everyone was absolutely terrified because... Except the lawyers. The lawyers were loving it. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the joke is that Oracle is like one software developer and a thousand lawyers. Like, that's the, <laughs> the company. But the whole thing was that everyone else was sitting here outside of it in the software world going, holy crap, if APIs are something that's patentable, then everyone on the planet is going to be infringing them because that's how everything is built to communicate. <laughs> Like that's right. the standard. And so well, isn't the whole point of APIs existing is to use them yeah. to communicate. Like, it's like handing out a phone book and then being pissed that someone calls numbers from it. <laughs> <gasps> How fucking dare you? What we're getting at here is just that. And like I said earlier, like I think that there's definitely a purpose to the system existing. I think our implementation of it has just been bastardized beyond belief. Clearly something is wrong. If you have 50% of cases coming through the courts about patent infringement are brought on by patent trolls, then there is a major problem with the system. I mean, that is a gigantic threat to any small company. And it is also a major waste of time in the, the legal system. So that should be absolutely terrifying. I think as much as all the politicians care about small business. Uh-huh. Go on. That they would do something to, you know, remediate that. Moral of the story is that the system's definitely not where it should be. And there's a whole ton of room for improvement. Necropolism Podcast was brought to you by the ramblings of two crazy people at 